Well, stated before by Jordan, if you're visiting today, welcome. This is actually my first time celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, on Easter Sunday, uh, we celebrate that every Sunday and every day, uh, but it's an exciting time to be here, and uh, sermon might be just a little bit longer today, so I hope you didn't turn your ham up too high. Anyway, uh, now, it, it won't be too bad, but uh, yeah, let's, let's get started. Uh, I'll be preaching from Luke 24, 13 through 48, uh, titled, A Death We Will Never Forget. When the plane struck the two towers on 9-11 in 2001, uh, many people in Southern California went to Grace Community Church that following Sunday where John MacArthur preaches. Many came searching for answers and asking, why would God let something so terrible happen? In one interview, MacArthur was uh, semi-quoted saying, uh, rarely do I interrupt a sermon series, but sometimes an event will occur that I know I need to respond to. And he said, this was one of those times. Therefore, that following Sunday, as thousands upon thousands showed up to Grace Community Church to hear what the Word of God had to say about the 2001 terrorist attack in America, one attender who was interviewed said that he remembered seeing MacArthur come out to preach, at which point MacArthur began his sermon by saying, we are here this week to talk about an event that has affected all of us. An event that's altered the way we view the world. It's changed the course of human history. This event will shape us, and it will impact us for the rest of our lives. And that event, of course, he said, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so today, specifically on this day, we remind ourselves again that he is risen. Luke 24, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named uh, Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to Jesus, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth. A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But they didn't see him. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at a table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized Jesus, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, This is why it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. Well, Heavenly Father, God, we, we're not just opening up the Old Testament scriptures, Lord. We're opening up the New Testament scriptures. And God, I pray this morning that as, as we look at what Moses wrote and Isaiah prophesied and, and what David wrote in the Psalms and, and what has been proclaimed in your word, Lord, that as the hearts of those on the road to Emmaus burned within them, Lord, that you would do the same by the power of your spirit as we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus today and that our hearts would burn inside of us as we hear the voice of the living God speak to us who gives life to the dead and raises the dead to life. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oops. 
while the resurrection of Christ changed the entire course of human history, and as MacArthur put it, we, along with everything else, are forevermore impacted by it. In this passage, in Luke 24, Jesus' point to the disciples isn't it just that everything has changed after the resurrection. It's that everything in human history prior to his death and resurrection were all leading up to that one specific moment. In other words, the death and resurrection of Jesus wasn't just some random event that occurred on, the, on a blip in time. Rather, it was the redemptive plan of God that the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesians, this plan of redemption was determined by the triune God before he even created the earth. Therefore, that conclusion is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the apex of history as we know it. And the implication from that truth is that there is nothing in your life that is more relevant than living your life in accordance with the reality that the grave of Jesus Christ is empty. But that said, we should note that God's plan of salvation that we see unfolding in the, after the death and resurrection of Christ, and it becomes more clear that his plan of salvation and the identity of the Messiah, of his chosen one, of the Savior, wasn't all revealed at one time. God chose to reveal his plan to humanity over thousands of years. And through divine authorship, he spoke to and through the prophets in the Old Testament, which left us with segments of information regarding the identity and the work of our Messiah who was to come. Or as the disciples put it in verse 21, the one who would redeem Israel. Which means, throughout the entire Old Testament, Moses, what, what Jesus is speaking of, do not the scriptures testify to this? Did I not tell you about this? He's referring to the Old Testament. That Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, they, they, were given, they, they gave us glimpses of what and who to expect would redeem God's people. As we see in Luke 24, though, even from Jesus' own disciples, had trouble understanding how God was going to accomplish his promises that were anticipated in the Old Testament. They were looking for the Redeemer of Israel. Right? They, they, they say that in verse 21, we hoped he was the one. They believed that God's Messiah was coming. And yet we plainly see in, in Luke 24 that they had no idea how the Messiah would redeem them. Because once they were told, once, once Jesus was crucified, and once he was buried, they thought that the ministry of this great prophet was over. Well, at least until Jesus rose from the dead. At which point we see in Luke that he came to them. Multiple times, and then finally sat them down and said, why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's me, right? Not a spirit. Spirits don't have flesh. Spirits don't have bones. 
don't be amazed. Why are you looking at me like that? This is what I told you had to happen while I was among you. Therefore, Peter, James, John, everyone here, open up your Old Testaments, and I'm going to show you exactly what it means. And verse 46 gives us a conclusion of what Jesus taught them, that the entire Old Testament, from Moses to the prophets, Psalms, the entire Old Testament foreshadowed and foretold that the Messiah must suffer unto death and then rise from the dead. And that had to happen in order to redeem God's people. Now, I know today is a special day that we celebrate life. I should forewarn you that death is going to be the theme of this sermon. Because there's three biblical truths about death that we are going to look at today from the Old Testament. Number one, death was inevitable. Number two, death was necessary. And number three, death was defeated. We'll start with death was inevitable. While one of my friends was in his uh, residency at an Atlanta hospital. He had to train in the, uh, in the terminal unit where death is obviously inevitable because in that unit, it's only a matter of time till the patients in there die. During his time there, he told me that he had seen an abundance of death. So I asked him, well, how, how, how does your heart handle seeing that? And so much of that. He told me he was doing okay, but what had made the greatest impact on him was the appearance of each patient when they were close to dying. Without being too graphic, giving too much imagery, if you've ever spent time with a person on their deathbed, you know what he means by their appearance. And sometimes they're almost unrecognizable from the person that you once knew and the person they once were. And, and, and what he said next made a lasting impression on me. He said, Timothy, when, when you look at them, you can see that death is not natural. It wasn't meant to be this way. And what he, what he was trying to tell me was that you can see from the appearance of a person dying that death was not the original plan of God's design. Yes, death is inevitable, but it's not natural. That may sound crazy at first because every single one of us knows that death is inescapable. Yet the Bible clearly states that God's original design was good and without death. In Genesis 1 and 2, Moses explains how God created this beautiful universe and the, the heavens and the, the atmosphere and the earth and all of creation to reflect his glory and then he also created man to enjoy his creation and also to enjoy their creator, to enjoy God. At that moment, creation was full of life and filled with God's glory. And at that moment, death did not exist. At least not until Genesis 3. And there the Bible reveals to us how death entered the world. 
I'm certain you know the story. Most of you know the story. If not, we'll do a recap. God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the forbidden tree in Eden. And if they disobeyed his command, they would die. However, when we get to Genesis 3, the serpent shows up and deceives the woman by convincing her that she will not die if she eats from the tree. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. That's important theology. God made the serpent. He said to the woman, the serpent, did God really say, you, can, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we, we may eat the fruit from trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you'll not die, the serpent said. And being deceived, Eve ate from the tree and then proceeded to give some to Adam and Adam ate too. And the Lord shows up, says, what have you done? They confess. Verse 17, God says to the men, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, do not eat from. Here comes the curse. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. Here it is. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. It was God's judgment over Adam and Eve, and from that moment, death was inevitable for all of humanity. What's, what, what's amazing about the first three chapters of the Bible, this is the first three chapters of Genesis, is that so many of humanity's questions are answered just in those three chapters. It's as if the beginning of the Bible, it's like a, a, a Google search engine that answers mankind's deepest inquiries. Where do we come from? It answers that. What is our purpose? It answers that. Who am I? It answers that. Why is the world the way it is? It answers that. Where did sin originate? It answers that. Finally, where did death come from? It answers that. That Truth, hopefully, implies if you're, if you're searching for truth, if you're, if you're searching for answers in a, in a world of chaos and uncertainty, maybe it's time to stop questioning, did God really say that? Yes, he did say that. We're being called to respond to it. And from Luke 24, we're particularly being called to respond to faith in his Messiah who died and rose again. Now, on this side of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ to the throne, we, we, we can see the work of Christ. We understand his work. We understand what he did to redeem us. They haven't always understood <laughs> They didn't understand before. We see that in Luke 24. We're going to see that prior to the New Testament. But while they didn't 
realize everything we understand about the Messiah, they did expect someone to come who would give us relief. In fact, the promise of that one who would redeem us from the curse began back in Genesis 3. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's during Satan's judgment from tempting the woman. God promised that someone is going to eventually come and slay the dragon. Yet as we can see, even in Luke 24, it's not fully clear. It wasn't fully clear who it was going to be. Even from Genesis 3, it's not clear that his name will be Jesus, and he will die for his people, and he will rise from the dead. But nevertheless, they believed. They believed someone was coming. Now turn to Genesis 5. I'll read the first couple verses, then I'll paraphrase for time's sake. The Lord gave you grace and mercy through the death and resurrection of Christ. You get no mercy from me in the sermon length today. Sorry. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. I didn't put that up there, and now for time's sake, I'm just going to paraphrase the rest of Genesis 5. It's a genealogy. Adam fathered Seth, then he died. Seth fathered Enosh, then he died. Enosh fathered Canaan, then he died. Canaan fathered Mahalalel, then he died. Mahalalel fathered Jared. Then he died. Jared fathered Enoch. Then he died. Enoch fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God for 300 years, and God took him. Methuselah fathered Lamech. Then he died. Lamech fathered a son, and he named him Noah. It gets rather repetitive, doesn't it? Genesis 5. Adam had Seth, and he died. Seth had Enosh, and he died. Enosh had Canaan, and he died. Canaan had Mahel, and he died. And with exception to Enoch, the pattern continues. Death is inevitable. We see the consequence of Adam and Eve being fulfilled in the death of the lineage from Adam. Methuselah had Lamech, and he died. And then Lamech had Noah. You can imagine at some point in the life of a young Noah, he would have asked his father, Lamech, about death. Dad, why did Grandpa Methuselah had to die? I have for goodness sake, I mean, if you look at his age, he was what, 969 years old? He was almost 1,000. Why did Grandpa have to die? I'm sure Lamech would have responded the same way Paul did to the Romans. The wages of sin is death. But son, Noah... God did not leave us without hope. In fact, Lamech, we're going to see, even hoped that his son Noah was going to be the one who was anticipated. Now look at the rest of verse 29. 
Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son. And he named him Noah, saying, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands, caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. There's the anticipation. There's the expectation. What happened in Genesis 3, and the one who was promised to have crushed the head of the serpent, you already see that they're expecting someone to reverse the curse. The expectation of Redeemer was there all the way back in Genesis 5. Lamech says, this one, my son, praying, prophesy, hoping, whatever, that, that this one will bring us relief. He will bring us rest. Interesting enough, when you get to Matthew 11, verses 29 through 30, and Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. It's the same Greek word in the Septuagint, the Old Testament, written in Greek. The same word that, that Noah will provide in relief and rest is what Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Is it a coincidence? I don't know. But we do find out that we did not find our rest in Noah. We do find our rest through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the point being, from Genesis 5, from the first five chapters of the Bible, we can see the concept, the concept of a Savior did not originate in the New Testament. Instead, the New Testament explains that Jesus is the fulfillment to the promise that began all the way back in Genesis 3. He fulfills all the promises that were made. Think like Luke 24, Jesus' disciples hoped it was him, right? They wanted a Savior so badly. They, they had set their hope in Christ so desperately. And yet on Friday, he was crowned with thorns, nailed to a cross, and buried in Joseph's tomb. That's a heartbreaking ending to the life of their beloved rabbi, isn't it? For three years, they had set their entire hope on Jesus. They committed their lives and their families to a man they believed was the Son of God, who was now wrapped in linen and buried in a tomb. Brings us to our second point. Death was necessary. Jesus... Luke 24 starts walking toward Emmaus with these two disciples and asks them, what's the dispute you're having? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answers them, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that, that, that have happened there? What things, Jesus says, asks. They said the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we were hoping, there it is, but we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported they had seen a vision of angels who said, He is alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but they didn't see him. 
And he, he says to him, How foolish are you? How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And then he reiterates that point when he meets with him again in verse 44, after he's revealed himself. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he also said to them, this is what is written. This is what it means. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. You think about the scenario for a moment. Jesus rises from the dead, appears among them, and they're dumbfounded. They're amazed. They don't know what's going on. And Jesus looks at them. How foolish are you? How slow to believe what the prophets have been telling you for thousands of years. I told you while I was with you that I had to fulfill what was written about me in the Old Testament. And I specifically told you that I had to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders to suffer and die. But I would also rise from the dead on the third day. In fact, guys, if you remember, Peter rebuked me for that. And that's why I told him, get behind me, Satan. Because what you didn't understand is that Israel would have no redeemer if I didn't die for your sins. In other words, my death was necessary in order for your sins to be forgiven. Because you can't have a Savior without the cross. And Isaiah told you this, right? The prophets, they probably sat down. Let's, uh, let's open the scroll, unroll the scroll of Isaiah. We'll start in verse 6 and we'll jump back to 3. The prophet said, we all went astray like sheep. We're all sinners. We've all turned to our own way. Every single one of us. We're all guilty. But then what does it say? The Lord has punished him. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Back to verse 3. A man suffering who was despised. We didn't value him. We didn't care about him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. And he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him struck down by God. But he was pierced. Because of our rebellion and crushed because of our iniquities and punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. The Son of God incarnate, Jesus, was sinless was sinless, and verse 10, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Forget about the uncertainty of the disciples in Luke 24 for a moment. Are you aware of your necessity for the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you personally come to grips that your sin is so grievous in the sight of God that the only outcome you deserve is whatever pleases the wrath of the Almighty? 
The reality that you too have turned away and sinned against a holy and just God. And because God is perfectly and infinitely just, there is no escaping his anger for what you have done. Do you understand that? If so, if you understand the necessity for the cross, are, are you still struggling to feel affection for Christ today? If that is the case, may I encourage you to remain at the foot of the cross until you're convinced that the only thing which spared you from an eternity of weeping and gnashing of the teeth is the grace of God which chose to spare you from it. And the suffering that the Son of God willingly faced so that you wouldn't have to. And to consider, you may understand the necessity of the cross. But if there's no joy in your heart because of it, maybe you truly haven't comprehended the significance of your sin and the wrath that the Son of God faced on Friday for you. To paraphrase the writer of Amazing Grace, John Newton, loved ones, we are great sinners in need of a great Savior. And therefore, Isaiah he told God's people, we need a Savior who can bear our iniquities. We need a Savior who can remove all of our transgressions. And we need a Savior who can be crushed by God and yet be found worthy to be raised from the dead. As Jesus tells the disciples, hey, not only was my death anticipated in the Old Testament, not only was my death foretold of and how I would die, so was my resurrection. And turn to Acts 2. Peter preaches from Psalm 16 and says this. This psalm is about Jesus. And it was looking, this psalm that David wrote was looking toward the day when death would be defeated that's our third point our final point death was defeated instead of reading Psalm 16 we turn to Acts 2 where Psalm 16 is quoted Peter's preaching at Pentecost this is post resurrection and ascension Peter says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. That's a good conversation to have at lunch today. And you, with the help of wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. <laughs> because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. And David said about him, Here's Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. And then Peter exposits on Psalm 16. 
Fellow Israelites, he says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is still here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. And seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, Psalm 16, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Peter's point, that David, his body saw decay, right? So Psalm 16 can't be about him because he's still in his tomb. Jesus' body, however, his body's not in the tomb. Why? Because his body, the Holy One of God's body, did not see decay. Which means, yeah, David wrote this. David wrote Psalm 16. But Jesus fulfilled it when he rose from the dead. <laughs> in verse 24, it's my favorite part. I'll go back to it. Why? It tells us how. Why did Jesus' body not see decay? Verse 24, because it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. And therefore, on that day when Jesus rose from the dead, death was defeated. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, leaves us with hope and assurance and its implications. We'll just go through a few. What does the resurrection of Jesus give us hope for? What does it mean? What are the implications? Number one, the resurrection of Jesus gives us assurance that Jesus' death was accepted by God for the forgiveness of sins. Paul says, Jesus is still buried, we are still dead in our sins. He is not. The resurrection of Jesus confirms that Jesus is the anointed one promised by the prophets. My reference is just this passage, Luke 24. The resurrection gives us hope in life after death. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14. Paul says to Thessalonica, yes, We grieve for those who have fallen asleep, who have died, but we don't grieve as those who do not have hope. Why? Because when Jesus returns, he will bring us to life again. Our bodies to life. The resurrection sets us free from the power of sin. The resurrection promises us we will receive indestructible heavenly bodies. The resurrection began the recreation of all things. The resurrection began the ascension of Christ to the throne where he reigns over the entire universe. It means when you're having a bad day, that being reminded that Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the throne of heaven, it means that he's in control even of your bad day, loved one. 
resurrection guarantees his return, where he will judge the living and the dead. The resurrection holds us accountable before God on judgment day, when our names will be searched for in the book of life. Is your name in the book of life, loved one? Do you know if your name is in the book of life? There's only one way it's written there. And it's not by you grabbing the pen and writing it down. It's only by the work that Jesus Christ did by dying for your sins and raising from the dead. That is it. You get your name in that book by believing that Jesus Christ forgives you for your sins. And those whose names are written in the book of life will live forever. And because the resurrection promises us peace. Peace in, in a winter that doesn't last 74 months. And uh, pain and just everything that, that we dislike about this current status in earth. The resurrection promises that it's all going to change and none of that filth, none of that pain, none of that sin, none of that discouragement, none of that depression is going to be there in the new heavens and the new earth. The resurrection promises that. It guarantees that. The resurrection guarantees one day we will see him face to face. We will see our maker, and see our savior. And the resurrection condemns death itself to the eternal lake of fire and Satan to the bottomless pit. And on that day, when Christ returns and judges death and judges Satan, fallen angels, that will be the end of death as we know it. It will be the irony of all ironies when death itself dies. And on that day, if you believe that Christ rose from the dead, it will be a death that we never will forget. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, pray that you use the scriptures that testified about Christ and tell us that he is the one who was prophesied about will also convince us that we are in need of forgiveness of our sins and in love you sent your son to die for those sins because of his sinlessness his worthiness, his faithfulness to you as a human. You brought him back to life and now sits on the throne. This is the message that we are to be reminded of and I pray that you would draw people to believe that Christ is no longer in the grave.